the reading this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, and that's on page 874 of the Church Bibles. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This last week's uh, Ethel has been guiding us through some passages in scripture that deal with the subject of meals. And therefore, I thought it would be good for us to keep this continuity. The Lord was always careful when choosing the figures for his parables. He would not go for complex ideas or situations which only some people could understand. But he would choose things that were common knowledge to anyone, regardless of class or position, a door, a sheep, a camel, water, and here, the invitation for a meal, something which we all know well and always like to receive. One of the first things that we were invited to here in Grace Church Leith was to a meal at a brother's house. And that was a very heartwarming experience for us. Now, the immediate meaning of the passage is very clear given the context in which it is spoken. The first verse of the chapter tells us that one Shabbat, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. He teaches this parable during a dinner and considering his target audience, the Pharisees, the parable must be understood as one of the many times in which he says to the Jews that since they were rejecting him as the Messiah, the kingdom of God would be opened to people of all nations. The meaning for them was quite clear. The host was the Lord. The banquet was the kingdom of God, which was arriving with Jesus. The invitations were all the prophecies regarding the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. The servant may be understood as these prophets, or more specifically, John the Baptist, who prepared the ways of the Lord. The first invited were the people of Israel, uh, and the people from the street, which were brought after the guest refused, were the Gentiles, people of all nations, which until that moment had not known God, and now were being included in the kingdom. However, that doesn't mean that this exhausts the meaning of the passage and that it was useful only for the Pharisees of that time. Most epistles, for instance, they were firstly written as letters directed to address specific issues happening in the church to which they were destined. 
But with time, and very soon, they became circular letters, which were copied and sent to all churches for their learning. Christ says the word is a treasure out of which we can bring out old and new things. And that surely is the case for the passage we have before us today. The first verse tells us what prompted the telling of the parable, which was given as an answer from Jesus. When none of, one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this, in turn, was a response to what Jesus was teaching in the previous verses. We see Jesus saying that blessed will be those who invite for a feast, not their relatives, friends, or rich neighbors, but the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind, those who cannot pay back. He is constantly calling the Pharisees' attention to their hypocrisy in maintaining external religion and rituals while ignoring many more vital commandments, like caring for those in need. And then this man burst out. Wait, wait, wait. Not only those who care for the poor are blessed. Everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. And that includes all of us, for we are offspring of Abraham. And then Jesus proceeds to explain something to this man. That he was not at all kicking them out of the kingdom of God. But that they were the ones excluding themselves due to their rejection, rejection of it. It's like he said, oh, you say that blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom. And that is true. But I tell you that the kingdom is here. The invitations are already issued and you are continuously refusing them. And he does so through a parable. A once man gave a great banquet and invited, invited many. This was a custom in those times. Someone, generally a wealthy person or the ruler of a region, would make a great feast, accompany it with entertainment, and invite those who were esteemed by him to attend. This was seen as a, as a gracious favor from the host of the banquet, and it would be considered highly offensive to refuse the invitation. Also, considering the host would sometimes be a ruler responsible for providing for the people of that neighborhood, it wouldn't make sense to not receive that gift. It was a great banquet and many were invited, uh, not only a select few of God's favorites, but all of his church, all of Israel, with no requirements other than accepting the invitation. And the story progresses. And at the time of, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. It was also a custom, and it, it still is in some Palestinian regions, for although invitations had been sent, to send a new messenger when the meal was ready, to let the guests know. Now, but we must pay attention to two things which will properly contextualize the guests' refusal to come. First, this banquet was held in the evening, something we know from the original Greek word, dipnin, which means a supper, and also from the culture of that time, in which it was usual for uh, these gatherings to, for meals to occur in the evening, after everyone had finished their work, business, and daily course. This is important to note because it further highlights how the guest replies were truly excuses. It was not a proper time to see fields and oxen, and they would most certainly be having dinner at their own houses and not attending to businesses. Secondly, the host didn't invite them 
all of a sudden, giving them no time to prepare, time to take other matters off the way so that they could attend the banquet. The verse says he sent his servant to call those who had been invited. The verb for give in gave a banquet in the original Greek expresses the idea of incompleteness. That is, he was making, he was preparing a banquet and warned them of it. They were told in advance of the feast, but they made no efforts to save the date, to solve in advance other issues, other matters, so that they could be available to honor the feast that would be hosted. They had previously received the invitation and now time had come. The messenger was sent to tell them that everything was ready and they showed no sign of having cared in the slightest. They refused to come. Verse 18 says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And the last one says, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. The Lord leaves no doubt here about the invalidness of the reasons presented by those who, who had been invited. He upfront states right at the beginning that those were excuses, as were excuses the reasons pre presented by the Pharisees not to accept him as the, as the Messiah. As I said, it made no sense to attend to these matters in the evening, and so it, it were, these were even poorly made excuses. They made no real attempt to convince the Lord. The excuses were given out of mere, mere formality, and what they really meant was, ah, we don't feel like going. However, although the excuses themselves were invalid, we must observe that the things to which they point in themselves are not. All of these excuses refer to legitimate things. It is perfectly right that a man should go and see after his field. Perfectly right that the ten bullocks should be harnessed and tried. And perfectly right that the sweetness of whether love should be celebrated. But perfectly wrong that any of them should be put as a reason for not accepting the Lord's invitation. And that brings us to an important observation that the reasons we present for not following the Lord they are very often apparently legitimate ones. The bane of humanity is not that we pursue inherently evil things, but that we pursue good things in a wrongful manner. C.S. Lewis, he tells us that sin is always a distorted form of good. For the devil cannot create anything good. What he can do is seduce us to look for valuable and desirable things which God created in the wrong ways and places. The fruit of the garden was not itself evil, for God looked down and saw that everything he made was good. Evil was the act of seizing it without the Lord's permission. Brothers, what I mean is that no one desires evil in itself, for that would be a contradiction. With the exception of mental illnesses, the person who steals does not steal because they value the act of stealing, nor do they want to have their property stolen. What he desires is the possession of an object, or rather the happiness that it can offer them. And happiness is good and created by God, but they seek it in a wrongful manner. The same can be said of sensual pleasures. God creates the delight that exists in the love of a married couple, 
but our hearts seduce humankind to look for this in adultery. But since we were created by God and originally programmed, as to say, by him to experience these goods in specific ways with boundaries, when we follow corrupted versions of them, we will always suffer and be left with a sore taste in our mouth. And it is thus that society can promote sexual freedom to the highest degree, but cannot avoid the erosion of families, relationships, and trust between individuals. And what I mean that is that, carefully considered, our desires seek ultimate goods, which are legitimate ones, like happiness, pleasure, security, comfort, peace, satisfaction, accomplishment, relationship, love. But our falling hearts lead us to look for them in false providers. And the Bible calls these false providers idols. In other words, our longings are not a problem but they are misplaced, misplaced onto things which not only are unlawful, but also cannot satisfy. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, we read, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can, that can hold no water. In the New Testament, Jesus presents himself as that fountain of living waters. And he gives a description of the effect of idols on us that can be understood by anyone who has already experienced uh, an universally human sensation, thirst. He tells to the woman of Samaria, Samaria, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that is wonderful news. It is wonderful news to know that God is not commanding us to let go of all our affections, desires, hopes, and expectations, and to live a life of indifference or mere self-denial. Rather, he presents himself as the creator of them and promises to meet them in a way that nothing in the world could. So he is not like a ruthless ruler demanding abstinence, but rather as a vigilant father warning his children not to eat poison, for instance. As a loving shepherd guiding his sheep out of thorns and thistles into green pastures and still waters. Now, one last thing can be said about these middle verses. When we look closely, it is obvious that the alleged necessity of the guests was no necessity at all. The field would not run away if he waited till the following day. The bargain was finished, he had bought it. There was no necessity for his going, and the next day would have done quite as well. Evening would not even be a suitable time for the careful examination of possessions like field or oxen. And what we can thus conclude is that there was no real contrariety between these duties and the acceptance of the offered feast. There is no reason why you should not go to the feast and see after your feud. There is no reason why you should not love your wife and go to the feast. As a matter of fact, she is just as welcome to the feast as you are. God's invitations for us may come into collision with many immediate desires we have or habits we have gotten used to but not 
with the deepest longings of our heart, neither with our social and moral duties. On the contrary, the more a man accepts and lives upon the good that Jesus Christ spreads before him, the more fit he will be for all his work and for all his enjoyments. The field will be better tilled, the bullocks will be better driven, the wife will be more wisely, tenderly, and sacredly loved if in your high hearts Christ is enthroned. And whatsoever you do, you do as for him. It is only the distorted and abusive possession of his gifts and the idolatrous absorption in our duties and relations that turns them into impediments in the, paths, in the path of our Christian life. And so the final verses read that the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to him, Go out quickly to the straight streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, great crowds, companion returned and said to them, yeah, that's another verse, and that my house may be filled. And he says that those who rejected, who refused to come, would not taste of the great banquet. It was a cultural custom that when a king or a lord would throw a banquet, he would invite those who were closest to him, generally the nobility, uh, relatives or other important or relevant individuals of the city. These were here representing the people of Israel who had been in a covenant with the Lord for centuries now. But after the refusal, the host turns to other people. And note how ever-expanding is the grace of our Lord. Firstly, he calls those on the streets and lanes of the city. That is, streets within the city's boundaries. That is where you would find the lay people, humble, commoners. For the wealthy, they would be in their own comfortable houses having dinner with their families. The servant brings these people into the banquet, but points out, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And if there is room, there is grace to be given. And therefore, the host commands the servant to go further to the highways, that is, the roads outside the city that lead into it, where beggars, outcasts, lepers would stay, and to the hedges under which would sleep the homeless and the poorest, the despised and forgotten. The idea here is not at all to shame poverty. For it must be obvious that, being a parable, this text does not refer only to these categories as taken literally, but spiritually. You may not be physically poor, but without Christ we are all hungry for spiritual food. Without Christ we are all spiritually maimed, limping under the weight of our sin, of our distresses and sorrows. We are all blind, groping in the dark, looking for meaning in our lives. We are all dirty, stained by our sins and by our repeated choices for what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And still, the message is, there is no one who has gone so low in life, socially or morally, that they cannot join the glorious banquet of the Holy One, if simply they accept His gracious invitation. 
you need not worry about there being no room left for you if you are a latecomer. In my father's house are many rooms. And well, of course, we do not find any mention of these people refusing the invitation, for that would be unlikely. While the guests of honor preferred their own meals to the banquet of the Lord, these people had little or nothing to eat. While the Pharisees held on to their own righteousness, the blind, the sick, the leprous, the possessed, the criminal on the cross, they knew how much they needed a savior. And here we come to a crucial point. That is, the only requirement for those who wish to partake in the banquet offered by our Lord, need. To acknowledge that we need that mere material life cannot provide what our hearts most earnestly long for, like meaning, love, relationship, purpose, and justice. We all value relationships, but all our earthly relationships are made with people as imperfect as us. We betray and we are betrayed, we hurt and we are hurted, we disappoint and we are disappointed. And nonetheless, these are but images of the truest relationship, the relationship with our Creator, the one who will not disappoint it or be disappointed by us. We all generally want to be good people, to be moral, but so often we find it so hard to be. So often we find ourselves to be in eternal conflict between what we know is right and what we feel the urge to do. We find ourselves immersed in guilt over our mistakes and still we cannot do better. In the lower banquets, there is cleansing. We want to be free, but we constantly feel ourselves bound to repeating old family patterns or following impulses which we do not approve of. We weren't earned for purpose, but as hard as we strive for professional or academic accomplishments, although we set yearly goals and objectives, even when we do achieve them, which is less often than we would like, we are still left empty. We all long to be loved, but so often find that our love and the love of others is not as loyal, as secured, as unconditional as we would want it to be. We hide ourselves, we hide aspects of ourselves of which we are ashamed from our beloved ones. We, we hide aspects because we fear that if they knew these things, they, should, they would no longer love us. But there is a love which completely knows us, from whom we cannot hide anything. A love that sees things in us that even we ourselves don't know that are there, and that still loves us wholly, fully, and unconditionally. We want to be reasonable, we want to be wise, and to teach that to our children, but how often we are unreasonable in our decisions and choose the worse over the better. And there is nothing more unreasonable than being hungry and rejecting freely offered food. Wisdom itself, if properly attended to, points us to the banquet of our Lord. The call of our Lord is not to abandon all our agency, all considerations regarding what is good for us, but to wisely ponder the value of what is offered to us. And what is offered to us pressed upon us in the gift of Jesus Christ. Help, guidance, companionship, restfulness of heart, power of obedience, victory over self, control of passions, peace through adversities, 
tranquility deep and genuine, death abolished, heaven opened, measureless hopes following upon perfect fruition here and after. These things, they are all gathered into that one word, salvation, on the simple condition that we accept that invitation. And what do we do with them, with this joyous, glorious invitation? They all, with one consent, begin to make excuses. How absurd and unreasonable it is to have all that offered to us and still say, I do not want God, give me five yoke of oxen. That's the real good. And I will stick by that. Brothers, it is not reason, uh, reason or wisdom that leads us to that refusal, but something else entirely. And that, most often than not, is pride. It is pride that led the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. The theological disagreements were, were a, a, a curtain of smoke. It is pride who so often bears us from understanding our own necessity. We would rather have the ten oxes that we bought with our own effort than the banquet that is graciously offered to us. If the condition for the last one is to admit that we are desperate for it. We would rather strive to build what we need, to keep focused on tilling our fields, than to accept the gracious invitation of our Lord. And C.S. Lewis, the same writer who said that sin is the pursuit of good things in wrongful manners, he also says that there is one sin which is different from the others, and that is pride. Because pride is exactly what leads us to cling to our distorted ways of striving for satisfaction instead of turning our trust to God. Pride blinds us to our need, and if we don't see our need for spiritual food, we will refuse the invitation. We will get so used to see striving as the only mean of achieving things that we will project this onto Christianism itself. And thus, instead of seeing the gospel as a gracious invitation to a joyful and hearty banquet, we will see it as a mere set of commandments, burdensome and tiresome. We see that in one of the guests who says that he needs to be with his newlywed wife. And it must be noted that the Old Testament allowed men to plead this reason as a ground for exemption from military service. The folly of this guest was that he treated the invitation to the feast as though it were as burdensome as a military conscription. If that's the vision, of course we will refuse the invitation. If that's the vision that you got from what other Christians might have told you, then I beg you to see that what the Lord holds before you is not a job, but a feast. Yes, God is indeed the Lord. He does indeed issue commandments, but those are the benevolent commandments of a father to his children. They are not chains restricting freedom, but light guiding our path, pointing us to the uttermost satisfaction of our soul's desires. God does not repeatedly exalt himself in scripture because he's a narcissist. He exalts and emphasizes his goodness so that we can see it, go after him, and enjoy that goodness for his glory and to the benefit of our souls and hearts. We read in Isaiah 55, 1-3, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Many religions in history have required a trial of passage of those interested in joining them, a proof of worthiness or of commitment. Some have also required periodic demonstrations of that commitment through feats of bravery or feats of self-sacrifice. And that is not the case for Christianism, for the gospel. Our ritual of entrance is the baptism, through which you acknowledge your need for cleansing. Our recurring sacrament is not a feast, it's not a test, but a meal, through which we acknowledge our hunger and we are spiritually fed by the flesh and blood that were shed by someone else on our behalf. You don't have to prepare the feast to strive to find food. It is ready and it is before you. There is no trial. There is a table. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of hearing your word and reflecting upon the glorious truths that you set forth before us, Lord. The invitation to be at your table, to let go of all our attempts to strive for our own worth, to, for our own recognition, and to simply and only acknowledge our need. And we need you, Lord. And so we ask that you always be with us, providing for us what we need and being yourself above all, all we need. We thank you for that gracious provision and for the way in that you demonstrated that perfectly visually in the life of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, which we will partake of, and that it shows us the same thing, that you are the one who are willing to spiritually feed and be all the good that we need in our lives. We thank you for that, and we praise your name in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>